Acts chapter 19. We'll be reading the entirety of this chapter, the historical backdrop to our text this morning in 1 Corinthians 16. Acts chapter 19. I'll bring out the New King James Version. God's Word says, And it happened, while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. He said to them, In what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannius. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call uh, the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands." So not only is this trade of ours in danger of failing into fall, I'm sorry, falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius, Aristarchus, Macedonians, 
Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians, the city of the Ephesians, is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana, and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This morning I have a mini-message before the main message, and it's more of a lesson than anything I really want to uh, spend a lot of time on. I've written on it, and I've probably shared much of its content with you before, but we have come to the passage, um, uh, one of the base passages that is often used in this one area. So we're going to deal with that, and then I want to press into the main message this morning, um, which... Uh, all of this is really correlated together. It's all within the same context here, um, but we want to look at it uh, in those two categories. I want to begin by looking at chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. And uh, we looked at this expression of abounding in the work of the Lord uh, in two areas for the Corinthian church. Remember, we're talking about a church that's got problems. But even Christians in their weakened state with all the complications involved that they brought upon themselves um, by their disregard for some of the instruction and by the confusion brought in by others, um, even in that state, Paul says you can at least minister in a couple of areas. And he lists those out for us. And we looked at those last week. In doing so, we uh, see Paul's instruction here in Corinthians about something they were supposed to do in a time frame of doing it. And the reason I want to take a little time on this, and if it gets out of hand and I need to spend more time because you're looking at me with blank faces like, what's he talking about? Then I'll take the whole message on this and I'll save my other message for next week. But um, we uh, come to the book of Corinthians really looking to examine how we do church. And it's probably the best set of books, First and Second Corinthians, to really do that. Many people go to the book of Acts, but that really isn't its purpose. Acts really gives us a history of it, and we do find some nuggets of information there of how the church was functioning, but we don't really have directives stated there saying, go do this and do it this way, um, like we do in the epistles. And when we come to most of the epistles, one of the things we're usually doing dealing with is doctrinal issues. Um, and when you go through 
Uh, Romans, of course, is the introduction of Paul's whole theology. It's not that they are vacant of any other information. It's that for most of the epistles, their, their uh, main approach is to talk about doctrinal error that may be coming into the church and issues along that line. When we come to the situation in Corinth, a lot of it was in their practice, in what they were doing. And so we come to these two books really looking for information. And I believe we should be deriving a lot of our information of how we do church from Paul's directives to this church who was doing most of the things wrong. And we have been trying to come at this book with an attitude that says, if we are doing something wrong, we are willing to subordinate ourselves first to the Bible, and we are willing to throw out anything that we have always done if the way we have always done it is in disregard to God's Word. We have found on several occasions areas that we were slacking, lacking in, whether it be within the role of women in the church, whether it be um, in the manner of partaking of communion. Um, we have seen some of those areas that we had to make some adjustments as we went through this study. Uh, we also saw some things that supported our position and without doing violence at all to Corinthians that we didn't have to change at all. And this is one of those areas. And so uh, the, the claim that, well, you're just uh, cherry-picking passages that agree with you to support what you're already doing really is not indicative if you've been here for the entire study in First Corinthians of what I've been teaching. Um, I've been stepping on toes, stomping on them, not only yours but mine um, and the leadership, and, and uh, we're fine with that. And we are ready and always willing to... Uh, conform ourselves more and more to God's Word uh, rather than just the habits of men or the traditions of church. And so um, here in 1 Corinthians 16.2, in the midst of talking about uh, ministering through giving, he gives us an indication of when this was to occur. And of course, we today, have, there's still a great undercurrent created by the uh, cultic practices of the uh, Seventh-day Adventists that you shouldn't be worshiping on Sunday. And and I thought that uh, this was pretty much resolved, but it's still popping up even in Facebook occasionally for me. Um, and uh, that some of my pastor friends are even dealing with some of these issues in their churches still to this day. And so when we come to this, I just want to very briefly touch on it. Why do we worship today and not yesterday? Uh, why are we celebrating on Sunday and not on the Sabbath that God set aside the seventh day at creation. What changed and why have we transformed it? And is this just a Catholic thing that has taken over our church um, and that the Seventh-day Adventists claim that they are the true church because they are following that and that all churches that worship on Sunday are anti-Christ, that is opposed to him and anti-the law. Um, here is one of those passages where Paul gives specific instruction of when they were to gather together in this situation to specifically uh, collect the uh, offerings of the people. And so whenever it says on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay aside something, uh, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there may be no collections when I come. That is on the, the practice of the church at that time already was that on the first day of the week, they're going to gather together, they're going to set these monies aside uh, for the giving to the church in trouble there in Jerusalem, to the, to the uh, 
famine that had hit that region. Uh, This is not the only place. We also have it in Acts chapter 20. Uh, There they weren't gathered for giving, but they were gathered to partake of communion. And if you remember, Paul was coming down. uh, He arrives there, and uh, that is where Eutychus fell out of the window. Remember, he preached all night. That was a Sunday, the first day of the week they had gathered to break bread. So they were there together on the first day of the week to perform that function. Of course, we can relate all that to the resurrection of our Lord. Um, and that's what I want to do because we just got done with chapter 15 talking about our Lord's resurrection. We spent an entire chapter talking about its importance. And I would contend with you that that is the reason, not just historically, um, that we worship on Sundays, but theologically that is why we worship on Sundays, because we want to emphasize the incredible nature of the resurrection, that it is our hope that it has transplanted, and yes, I really did say that, it has transplanted creation as the greatest event in the history of the history, is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you recall, back there in our study, it says that we have all been made new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away, all things have become new. And because of that, we have something that both on earth and in heaven has affected all things. It has transformed itself into the greatest event. We have evidences throughout Scripture of that very fact. So why do we not celebrate on the Sabbath that the Old Testament spends so much time on Um, We look into the New Testament, we see Christ um, giving some interesting teaching about the Sabbath, but generally keeping it. Um, Why this move? Well, Jesus ministered before the resurrection. The resurrection has such an impact that it demands a response. Its impact on heaven is very clear in Revelation Um, In Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we have it clearly described for us the difference Christ's resurrection makes. And with that resurrection, I'm also referring to his ascension into heaven. Um, And we have studied this hopefully many times in the past. And if you need to go back and read Revelation 4 and 5, this is an historical record. This is not prophetic in terms of foretelling, but of foretelling the past. In chapter 4, we have the same song that the Old Testament people heard, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, uh, who was and is, is to come. We have the declaration. Um, and here's the song in verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Well, in the Old Testament, which is this is a record of, the why is for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So the songs of heaven were focused on the creative work of God. That was his greatest work at that point, was the creation of all that exists and man in his image. And again, man in his image is the pinnacle of that creation, which we destroyed by our sin. And so God calls upon us to celebrate, as it is celebrated in heaven, we celebrate on earth his Highest working at that point, and that was creation. 
But we get to chapter 5 of Revelation and something changes in heaven. The song that has been sung for thousands of years in heaven to the Creator by the creatures is transformed into a new song. In verse 9 of chapter 5, they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Okay, so that's comparable to the holy, holy, holy. This sacrifice has made us holy. The Holy One of Israel has been slain and He has by that covered our sin stain and and cleansed us of it that we could be counted holy. And so what is the response? Verse 12. Again, the secondary, the chorus if you will. Chorus in verse 4. You are worthy because you created. Now look what the worth is. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom. Do you see? The comparison and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Why? Blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. The song of creation has been transplanted by this new song being introduced here that now we have something of greater power and majesty and glory that has been accomplished by God, it does not diminish His previous work. It simply raises it. He has taken what was sin-stained and made it perfect. Before, He took what was nothing and made something. Now, He took he started off with zero and added. In the work of Christ, He started off with a negative. And brought it to perfection. And thus the resurrection transforms worship in heaven. So it should be reflected on earth. Our worship should adjust. And we found the early church doing that. We find them meeting on the first day of the week um, for their breaking of bread. We find them meeting in Corinthians on the first day of the week um, for their uh, giving uh, to the work of the Lord. We find them engaging this. And so no, this is not something that um, was introduced by those that opposed Christ. It was not uh, largely brought about due to um, some false teaching or some pope, papal uh, authority. It's based upon the theology and the history of the resurrection. And that's why we confidently worship today. Not worship the day. We worship today as the day to worship the Lord because of the power of His resurrection. And so having studied through that all of chapter 15, we come to that statement in chapter 16 on the first day of the week. Why? Why that day? And I know there's been those arguments, oh, it's Sunday. It's the day that everyone else worships the sun, S-U-N, and we shouldn't be involved in that. Well, I hate to tell you this, but the Romans worshipped a god on Saturday too. His name was Saturn. Okay? And he was a high god. And so the idea that we have gone into paganism because we're worshipping on Sunday and that we're worshipping S-U-N instead of the S-O-N is simply foolishness. 
that diminishes the powerful working of the resurrection on humanity and all creation. And that is why we worship this day and not another day. Now, does that mean that um, we don't want to refer to God's creative work? Oh, no, we do. We are in a privileged position where we have what we call weekends, which is the beginning and end of the week. We have an opportunity on Saturday and Sunday to take time off work for many of us. Uh, we expect a two-day hol- uh, holiday every week, holy days. We expect two holy days. Um, and uh, it's interesting that the Muslims have Friday, so I don't know if we are going to end up with a four-day work week because we have to honor Friday as well for the Muslims' holy day. Um, but we have that Judeo-Christian uh, opportunity here to remember God is our creator, but also is our recreator to the power of the resurrection. And which one is greater? Well, by heaven's words, um, it is the work of Christ in the resurrection. It is our victory over the stain that we have placed upon creative work of God. our sin. So now we move on. Doesn't look like there's any blank spaces. Doesn't look like anyone is going, huh? So I'm going to press on my other message that I'm going to try to squeeze in in 35 minutes. And again, it's just one verse in a passage we really already studied a little bit of last week, but I warned you that I was going to come back to it, and that is in verse 9. And before we get into that, let's go Lord in prayer. I haven't done that yet. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the opportunity today to worship and celebrate the power of your resurrection in our lives. That by your victory over sin and death, we have victory over sin and death. And Lord, we marvel at your person and your work. And we thank you and can I cease to give thanks to your name for the privilege that is ours today to worship you, to know you, to be able to bring our requests before you and to have this access to your throne of grace. Lord, now as we look further into your word, we pray that your spirit might direct this time, might guard it from error, from opinion, from the philosophy of this world. As always, Lord, we ask for your pure word your truth, that it might transform our lives if we by faith believe it. In Christ Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Paul was anxious about the situation in Corinth, but he was still uh, engaged in ministry where he was at. He certainly would have wanted to get back to Corinth as quickly as possible to maybe uh, personally direct in the uh, implementation of much of what he taught there. But he saw the necessity of waiting. He would spend some time there. Uh, the winter, was he would spend in Corinth in that vicinity. Um, but for now, he was still here in Ephesus and involved in ministry. And he relates that to them here in 1 Corinthians 16. And we've read that entire account there in Acts 19 earlier this morning. Uh, And I'm going to reference that, but we're not going to be turning there very frequently. But I do want to reference 
that passage. But in verse 9, why is Paul going to stay in Ephesus when it seems that there's a lot that needs to be straightened out in Corinth and why not run back there and put out the fires? Because essentially that isn't Paul's job. I want to start right there by understanding whose responsibility it is to deal with issues in the church. We might think it's someone like a Paul, someone, an overseer, someone that's, that uh, can come in and, and has authority. Um, but we have the authority of God's Word. We have the authority of the Holy Spirit. Paul's expectation, which actually did occur, was that the Corinthians themselves would see to these matters. They were given this instruction, which we are now given. And while the human agent being present may have been helpful, it wasn't necessary. We have within the church a body of saints who are all spirit-indwelt. We have a congregation of priests, the Bible says in Hebrews. Thus, each one who claims the name of Christ, who is truly a believer, is a child of God, has that priestly access through Jesus Christ to God. And so by the ministry of the Holy Spirit within every believer, the implementation of God's revelation should be able to occur generally. And by the general population, I mean by the entirety of the church. By all those who are true believers should have a desire to implement it. They certainly have the authority to implement it um, in terms of their own lives and their, in their own uh, belief systems. Within the congregation, yes, there are authorities that God has established of pastors and deacons and, and uh, that he's put that some leadership role there and I'm not denying that. But Paul recognized that this letter should suffice if there is anything godly going on in your church, if there is any work in the Holy Spirit at all there, as muddied and as confused as you are there in Corinth, um, ultimately you don't need a heavy-handed apostle in your midst to implement God's truth. For you should be, should, capital S, you should be all interested in implementing God's truth. And here, by the Holy Spirit's revelation, Paul is communicating to them and to us these truths. The expectation is, implement them. You don't need apostolic authority to implement divine truth once it's been revealed. And so he reveals this truth. We have it laid out before us. And... Paul's presence or absence there really isn't the determinative factor. The determinative factor is, first of all, revealed truth. Secondly, a submissive church. Are we submissive to the Holy Spirit, to that revelation, and are we going to allow it to define us or redefine us if necessary? And this has been our challenge throughout our time together in Corinthians. How do we conform ourselves to this truth? And we have tried to wipe away the excuses that the church has made for 
decades sometimes, sometimes for centuries, of why we can ignore certain parts of 1 Corinthians. But we cannot. Any more than the Corinthians could. Do we need Paul to show up here? To walk in? The authority of Paul? No. He's given us the authority of the Holy Spirit of God Himself through His revealed Word. First of all, his expectation is that they should be able to conform to this without his personal supervision. They are not children. And when pastors start teaching and preaching and treating their churches as though they are full of children, even though many times we act like it, and the Corinthians maybe are the prime example of acting like children, the backbiting, the fighting, the the gluttony, the, all the things we see there, the arrogance, the puffing up. And we see a lot of that and we say, well, how juvenile is that? But the fact is that it's everywhere. But the more we treat people like children, the more they will stay children. Paul treats them with a heavy hand in the Scriptures by giving them this revelation, his expectation now is that they're going to move to maturity, and then that move to maturity is taking revelation and bringing it into my life and applying it. It is not by being spoon-fed by someone else. At some point, I stopped pre-chewing. Um, I know that we didn't do that. The blender did that. But we, we stopped pre-chewing our children's food at some point. In fact, at some point, I even stopped cutting up their meat. Well, most of the time. You see, Paul's expectation and desire for the church is that they would mature. That they would take God's revelation and apply it to their lives and hearts without human supervision. Recognizing, I have a Heavenly Father. I have a resurrected Savior that I'm accountable to. I have a Holy Spirit within me that I must be responsive to. And so my first contention is that Paul didn't need to run and put out that fire because it's not his job. Holy Spirit already provided the information through this revelation. Is now time for them to submit themselves to it and apply it to their lives. And if if they did that only in His presence and not also in His absence, then there was no genuineness to its application at all. If we only apply God's Word when the preacher's around, then let me share with you, it has no genuine meaning in your life. any more than a child who only obeys when their parents are looking cannot be called a child who is fulfilling God's word to honor and obey their parents. It's when the parents aren't there and aren't looking that we know it's in the heart of that child. Second reason, the the declared reason here in verse 9 is that um, I'm going to stay in Ephesus because this is where my work is. Putting out little fires, little spotty fires because of immaturity out there in the church is not 
fundamentally what Paul's been called to. He's been called to the gospel. He's sent them this revelation. It's in capable hands, um, the, the deliverer. Um, now it's just a matter of their obedience. But what's going on in Ephesus is of a whole different nature. And he says, in a, a wide and effectual door, I've got this huge opportunity here and that God has opened up to me here in Ephesus. And Paul's going to spend about three years in Ephesus. He, the door has just opened up for him. And, and Ephesus becomes kind of a, a beacon city where Paul uses it to reach out. And, and over and over again in Acts chapter 19, what do we keep hearing about? All Asia is getting reached. Because Paul's in Ephesus, and Ephesus is a major port and crossroads, and the, and the gospel is just penetrating Asia Minor from that one spot, Ephesus. It becomes a, becomes a center of a powerful ministry reaching extensively. Um, and when you read through all those cities of Asia Minor listed there, uh, and in Macedonia listed there in, in uh, Revelation, recognize what they are. This is the culmination of some powerful ministry that went on there in Ephesus during Paul's time there. It began by him going into the uh, and finding that there had been a messenger already there, a messenger who hadn't quite had the whole story. He had left Jerusalem before getting the story of Christ. He only knew about John the Baptist. That very narrow time frame between John's ministry and Jesus' ministry, um, some people, uh, Apollos namely, um, left the territory. Didn't get the whole story. They knew the Messiah was upon us. This generation, he's here somewhere. He's coming very, very soon. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was preaching John's message. Twelve men in that city listened. Now, you and I wouldn't jump up and down and say, wow, Apollos was such a successful guy. He had 12 men that responded. 12, that was it. In all of Ephesus, 12 men. Well, that's not a great and effectual door. No. He's going to name one of those 12 men here in a little bit in this chapter. But we're going to have 12 men in Ephesus. They were all Jews. Because that's all Apollos was going to. He hadn't really discovered the, the globalness of Christ's ministry. Remember, he's been out here preaching this for years. Think about it. Christ ministered for three years. Paul was 12 years before he got on the mission field. This is his second missionary journey. This guy, Apollos, has been preaching this message probably for 20 years or more. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. He's been searching for the Messiah and he hadn't heard about him yet. About this Jesus. He's excited to hear it from Aquila and Priscilla. And he transforms his message immediately to Jesus. But these 12 men were part of his early ministry before that happened. And Paul arrives and, and he talks about the laying out of the hands, a sign gift. Again, again, we've had that study in Corinthians, a sign for the Jews. And so he's in the synagogue. And so he has evidence of the Holy Spirit that was assigned to the Jews. They speak in various languages. He, is, he lays on their hands after their baptism, uh, uh, not a baptism of repentance, but rather a baptism of confession of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Um, they receive the Holy Spirit as a sign again to the Jewish community. Paul's preaching 
every week in the synagogue, every Sabbath he's in there contending with them about the gospel as is his practice. And finally, he's got so many enemies, he leaves. Well, that pastor, that doesn't sound like very successful ministry. Twelve guys that were already kind of uh, predisposed towards you. They were already looking for the Messiah. They'd already been baptized by John's baptism and these 12 men. And now you're preaching in the synagogue and they've kicked you out of there. Actually, you've left because they have opposed you so strongly. It says that after three months of being there, uh, verse 9 says, some were hardened and did not believe, spoke evil of the way before the multitude. He departed from them, withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So Paul takes his 12 and any others that have been added to him in that three months and says, if you're going to speak evil, if you're going to oppose this here in the synagogue, I'm leaving. I'm going over to the school building and I'm going to set up shop there and I'll teach whoever wants to come and I'll teach in that setting. And for two years, he taught in that setting. And during those two years, the gospel went out powerfully. Yes, through Paul's uh, uh, engagement of unusual miracles that God worked through him and through uh, exclusiveness that this wasn't just, this name Jesus isn't just a magic potion they just use a certain terminology and, and you have this great power. The seven sons of Sceva learned that lesson the hard way. Now that sounds like you've got seven guys showing up there that want to preach Jesus. Well, that should be great help to Paul, right? No. Because they had a wrong authority. They had a wrong priority. They had a wrong motive. And they were really just trying to use the name of Jesus and put on the appearances. And it's fascinating to me that the demons can tell the difference between those who are real and those aren't. Those who are just showy. The showy pseudo-Christian. The demons know them. And I want to contend with you that there's a lot of that in our day who are calling themselves Christians, who are walking around performing even exorcisms or attempting them, who are engaged in trying to uh, be spiritual leaders by doing what the apostles did. But they have no power because they never brought the reality of the resurrection into their life. For real. Remember two weeks ago? Do we really, three weeks ago, do we really, really, really believe in the resurrection? And of all the things that busts open the doors in Ephesus for the gospel, it's when the pretenders are exposed. When the pretenders were exposed by getting beaten up, stripped down, and thrown out of a house. Seven guys against one demon-possessed man. 
And everyone heard about that. And here's Paul over here conducting himself in this manner. Here is the seven sons of Sceva who go in there and say, by the name of Jesus, I'm going to have you do this and do that. And by the name of Jesus, I'm gonna, by the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, by that same Jesus, bam, they get nailed for being pretenders. <clears throat> and the very demon that they, that they were going to exercise authority over got authority over them. Scary stuff, folks. Scary stuff. When pretenders come up against real power. You see, the power of the resurrection has authority and power over that of demons. Period. But the name of Jesus, in terms of just its usage, doesn't. Is the resurrection power in our lives that has that kind of authority? Do we really, really, really believe in the resurrection? So suddenly, pretenders are exposed. And verse 18 of chapter 19 of Acts says, And many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Suddenly, all these people who were confessing to be Christians all of a sudden started coming forward. They were already believers. Now that pretenders were exposed, it's time for me to come and confess. (laughs) I'm a pretender too. I've said I believe in Jesus, but I've been holding on to this occultic stuff. I've been saying I believe in Jesus, but I've been clinging to my old idols. I've said I believe in Jesus, but I haven't lived any differently than I've been living. And this transformation begins to happen in Ephesus. And God says, or Paul says, this is amazing. I have to be involved in this. I cannot possibly leave this to come squash a little fire that you should be able to put out yourselves. We're cutting through the pretend. And we're coming into genuine faith here in Ephesus. A love for God that is infectious. Because these people recognize that if I'm going to be a genuine, uh, not a pretender, but a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, I am going to have to get all this other gunk out of my life. I mean out of my life. I don't mean putting that book on the shelf and not reading it anymore. I'm talking about taking that down, tearing it up, and burning it. And that's what they did. You think that's permanent? A permanent solution. Not going to play with it. Not going to leave it laying around. They brought magic books and burned them. All that occultic practice. They wanted to cleanse themselves of it. And then verse 20 says, The word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 16 when he says a great and effective door has opened to me. This is what it looks like. And the power of God is moving upon a people. The gospel goes forth and it might start with just 12 guys who are already predisposed to it. But if they are genuine in their faith, Even though pretenders come along, they'll be exposed and they were exposed. Now everyone says, wait a minute. Let's see here. 
That's what the real deal looks like. That's what pretending gets you. And I've been kind of pretending. And I don't care how much you use Jesus for this and Jesus for that. The seven sons of Sceva used Jesus' name all over the place. It meant nothing. Because there had been no difference in their life. The difference that only the resurrection can make. They were pretenders. And the response of the church, of those who believed in Jesus, to say, we don't want to be pretenders. We want to be the real thing. And that means I've got to get this garbage out of my life. And they came forward of their own accord. Many who had believed came and they started confessing, saying, this is what I've been doing and it's not the real deal. It's not evidence that I really believe in the resurrection. I want this out of my life. And this is what James talks about. He talks about confessing our sins one to another. It's not for absolution. It's not for, for, for forgiveness. But it's to hold one another accountable that are you genuinely a believer? Are you just using the name of Jesus all the time for your own personal ends? You see, a genuine believer is going to transform their lives to conform to Jesus Christ. And that calls us to separate ourselves from aspects of the world that we know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, we know, if we're honest, have nothing to do with Christ and everything to do with the evil one. These who were believed had bookcases full of witchcraft books. They brought them forward. Here they were. All our magic books. Here we bring. We're going to lay them out here and... and we're going to separate ourselves from them and burn them. And there goes the bonfire. You see, the idea that we too often hear among Christian circles is that we can hold to Christ and then dabble and dabble and dabble in the world and it's not going to touch me. I can go out there and dabble. And laws it's entertaining. Laws it's entertaining, I'm okay. I'm just... I'm not, I don't really believe any of that stuff. It's just for my entertainment. Really? And you call Jesus your Lord. But you're not entertained by God's Word. But you are entertained by the work of the evil one. Does that make any sense to us? It makes no sense to me. So things are happening in Ephesus... But then Paul has something else to say about what it looks like. Not only does it look like this that we've described here, but it also looks like opposition, an effectual door. It says, I have a great and effective door is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul says, I'm not leaving because, uh, not just because he's just an ordinary character who likes a good fight. He just recognizes that when God is at work, really at work, there is going to be opposition in the world. They are going to try to stop it, smother it, oppose it every way they can. When there's real things going on, and when the world does not come against us, we should be very concerned that we aren't really, really, really living out the resurrection in our life. Or it would make the world furious 
for whatever motives. And in Ephesus, of course, there was the great uproar um, led by Demetrius because they were losing out on their livelihood. Because all these Christians aren't buying any of our idols. They aren't buying any of our lucky charms, our amulets, our jewelry. And by the way, that's what it all was. I mean, it wasn't just an idol that you think of sits on a shelf in a corner of a room. I mean, they worshiped through all of that. Makes you want to think twice about the jewelry you're wearing, huh? And so they saw the loss of trade and they responded, oh, that the world would look around and see a loss of trade and say, um, we got to stop these Christians. They don't buy our stuff. Oh, that we wouldn't buy what the world puts out. It's filth. It's garbage. But we line up at the same windows that the world is to buy the world's filth. And we show up Sunday and pretend. When the pretenders were exposed and people really, really, really started living their faith, And the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And all of us go, wow, that's what I want in my church. That's what I want in my family. That's what I want in my life. I want that, Pastor. Okay. Then get ready. Because you're going to start a riot. You're going to start a riot. Because the world is going to say, how dare you live like that? How dare you do that? We're your family. They'll tell you that. We're your blood relatives. How dare you? And we say, I dare because of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How dare you? This is I'm your employer. How dare you? I dare by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How dare you live differently? You're making all of us look bad at school. I dare by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I don't care who it offends, my coworkers, my classmates, my family members, I will live consistently righteousness of God through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I fully anticipate opposition from the world And yes, the world includes people who are related to you by blood, physically. Please put that into your brain. Those are who I'm talking about. Not just presidents and congressmen and and things like that. When we're talking about the world, put them in your mind, those nice people that you kind of like, that you grew up with, who hate Christ and don't want you to live for Him in their presence. And you compromise for them all the time. Oh, that we would come forth and confess and tell our deeds that we might not be pretenders, but the real deal. It'll create riots in the world around us because they'll hate us. They'll want to destroy us They'll use confusion and mob mentalities. They'll do whatever to protect their own 
whether it be their own livelihood, their own lusts, their own sin. In Paul, this was not evidence of a wrong message, but of a powerful working of God. When there's lots of opposition in the world to what's going on in the church, we can kind of sit up and say, praise the Lord. That is what the apostles did, by the way, when they got beaten for preaching. They left there rejoicing that they were counted worthy of suffering for the name of Christ. Because opposition means if Satan's against what I'm doing, then I'm going to keep doing it. That's not proof that I'm wrong. That's proof that we're right. It's when the world says, que sera, sera, just go and do whatever you want to do. We don't care. Then I'm wondering, what are we not doing that we're supposed to be doing? What are we doing that we're not supposed to be doing when the church is treated as if it's a benign entity within the community? How are we any different than all the pretenders? See, Ephesus had a love for God that went right down to the shelves of their libraries. Right down to their very deeds. And out of fear of being a pretender, they took that secondary step of saying, it's not enough just to accept Jesus. I have to reject all else. This is discipleship. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Not just to accept Jesus, but to deny everything else. There's going to be a lot of adversaries. We're not telling you it's easy. But I'm telling you that if we're wanting to see great and effectual things happen, we want to see the Word of the Lord growing in our lives, in our midst, in our community. It's going to demand of us to get rid of the pretense of spirituality and trade in for the real thing. And that is not about participating in some weird kind of worship. It's about cleansing our lives of the filth of the world. walking in righteousness and in truth.